Welcome to the November 26, 2020 edition of Digging Out. We're getting through November 3rd as the presidential transition to a new administration is finally underway. My guest today is Tim Jamal. He's with us to put Armenia on our maps, on our radars, what devastation has been opening up in the majority enclave in the Republic of Artsakh, or also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, and the Republic of Armenia too, I would suggest, and why now is it happening, and what folks in the diaspora worldwide are doing to support those affected in the war, and why we should be concerned. Context is in short supply in the current coverage, so this is really a fine opportunity to have Tim with us. Because we have so many Armenian connections, community radio ought to deepen our appreciation of those valued connections backgrounds. Tim Jamal is an entrepreneur, advocate, educator, small business owner, and nonprofit executive. He was just reelected as a trustee for the South Orange County Community College District. Earlier in his career, Tim Jamal served as the chief legislative advocate and spokesperson for the Armenian Assembly of America in Washington, D.C., frequently testifying before Congress on issues relating to Armenia, the former Soviet Union and Central Eastern Europe, led five congressional delegations to Armenia and the Republic of Artsakh. Tim taught business administration and communications courses at the University of California affiliated American University in Yerevan, Armenia. He earned a Bachelor's of Arts degree in International Relations from Michigan State University and a Master's in Business Administration degree in International Business from the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Tim comes to us today from his home in Mission Viejo, California. Welcome to Digging Out, Tim Jamal. Thank you, Claudia. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Well, thank you. First, it is, I admit, a tall order, but could you offer us a sort of Armenia 101? And maybe we could start just so people can know the rich, rich, long history. There was the Armenian settlement in Jerusalem in the fourth century ID. So that Armenia already exists, but there are these vestiges already that we can still visit in Jerusalem, which I've actually had the privilege of visiting. It remains a part of the old city. And let's have Tim, you put the Republic of Armenia on the map and put in context of how the current war is deeply rooted over the last 100, maybe to 500 years. Sure. You're very fortunate to have visited the Armenian quarter in Jerusalem. I have not yet done that. You're very uh, fortunate to have done that. And you mentioned the fourth century. So Armenians, if you want a, a brief primer, the Armenians actually, as a state, adopted Christianity as their religion in 301 AD. So Armenians, faith and Armenians have gone together for centuries, Claudia. What happened was around the 16th century, the Armenian population was really absorbed into the Ottoman Empire which was started in about 1300 to its collapse in 1923. And Tim, when you say absorbed, so that we, because we're going to be working our way toward many absolute devastating sorts of rounds here. So absorbed, was that in a sort of a violent transition or it was? No, it was a conquest. So Armenia and Cilicia were, it was a conquest of the Ottoman Empire. So when I say absorbed, 
Um, maybe that's too soft of a word, but they became part of the Ottoman Empire around the 16th century. And on the one hand, it, Claudia, it created some opportunities for the Armenians in terms of economic opportunity, especially in the city of Constantinople. But at the same time, Armenians and the other minorities were always relegated to second-class status, denying basic civil rights and requiring them to pay extra taxes. And this system was really institutionalized throughout the Ottoman Empire. And then forward to the, <laughs> the, the, the 20th century, talk about what there were pogroms, but I don't know if pogroms is a word used for taking of Jewish lives, but there were pogroms that eventually it became a full-on genocide in 1915. Well, even in the early 1890s, massacres did occur against the Armenians, which actually ended up being the precursor to what was now known as the Armenian Genocide, which began in 1915 and extended through 1923. What I think it would be helpful for your listeners to know that in 1915, Armenians lived in all the major cities of the Ottoman Empire. I won't list them all, but some of my antecedents and grandparents have lived in these cities, what's now present-day Turkey. But cities like Van and Erzurum and Kayseri, where my grandparents are from, Izmir, where some of my family members are from, Armenians had a very significant population in the Ottoman Empire, even in 1915, around 2 million Armenians lived there. And by 1923, and we'll get to that, the population had diminished significantly as a result of the genocide. And mostly at that time, only living in Constantinople, which is now known as Istanbul. And Tim, in preparation for this interview, I thought, well, I'll just, you know, I, I knew from that marvelous documentary of Diana Epcar. I'm not Diana, sure how. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that was my first understanding of just how changeable and how reduced the map of Armenia's and it's sort of a it's a really elaborate sort of historical exercise to see where Armenia is moving around but it's always shrinking it's always about the shrinking happening unfortunately it is about the shrinking we used to say the Armenians had three seas the Black Sea Caspian and the Mediterranean Sea our boundaries touched all three seas whoa and and these are um, historic lands of Armenians for centuries, um, noted by Christian monuments and churches and monasteries, unfortunately, many of which have been desecrated or destroyed by Turks and later the Turks slash Azeris over the years. So it's uh, been an attempt to, in essence, to erase the memory of an ethnic people and to do it, you know, it started, of course, with the, with the genocide of the 1915, where 1 1.5 million Armenians were murdered on the orders of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Uh, it started out in 1915, where they took intellectuals and other business leaders of, from Istanbul or Constantinople, took them to the interior of Turkey and murdered them or executed them. And that started what began was the Armenian genocide. And then with, so that, you know, think about this. At the time, there were 2 million people living in Ottoman Turkey, and 1.5 million were slaughtered, forced into death marches, starved to death, beaten, raped, all at the direction of the Ottoman Turkish Empire, the Young Turk government at the time. I would like for you, could you sort of trace the path of how your predecessors 
uh, how they made it out safely. I mean, uh, that's, so that's a great, yeah, great, great question. And, and um, we need to know these things. Yeah. So I, I've started, I'm not as advanced as my wife on, on genealogy with, with my own family, but I have started to do it. And I have my grandmother on my mother's side who was born in Kayseri, which is now in Turkey, but was historic Armenian land. And I traced her ship's manifest from Constantinople to Ellis Island. And she traveled from Constantinople from Ellis Island in 1923. Now remember the genocide occurred from 1915 to 1923. And I looked on the manifest and there was only three people on it. It was my grandmother, her sister, and her mother. Now my grandmother had eight brothers and sisters. And I remember growing up as a messy young boy asking her about that. And she didn't talk a lot about the genocide. All she would tell me is that most of her family was killed. I didn't get much more on her out of her than that, but I probably could have pursued it more growing up in America. I wasn't raised Armenian. We didn't speak Armenian at home, but I had a sense of tragic things that had happened. And then I recall her telling me that when I was probably seven or eight years old, and then I went back a few months ago and I found the manifest itself and it really hit home that there were three people on that manifest in 1923, and it showed them coming from Kayseri to Constantinople to Ellis Island. Which is a pretty direct path after looking at Ms. Abkar's uh, documentary about where the, the, there was a wayward struggling to find a safe haven for many of those. Yeah, you know, th- there's a lot there. It's most people didn't survive. <laughs> they left no stone unturned to find Armenians and kill them whatever way possible, whether it was marching them into the deserts of Syria, to Derzor, or gangs of Kurds roaming uh, Turkey, finding Armenians and killing them. Uh, They um, spared nothing to find and root out Armenians and conduct a genocide and ethnic, ethnic cleansing. And Tim, I just couldn't help but notice when you were identifying the ones who did arrive were on the manifest, the preponderance of the ones that you were talking about were in her family. Those were males that didn't, it was all females that arrived. At yeah, if you were, if you correct, if most of the overwhelming majority of the males who were Armenian in, in Turkey at that time were, were murdered or executed or killed. Um, they were all females and they ended up in Michigan. And that's why I grew up in the state of Michigan in, in the Detroit area or born in Detroit, raised in, in the area. So then there was an independence, and but that was in the middle of the continuation of the genocide, independence in 1918, but the recognition around the world wasn't till a couple of years later. So there's always this kind of lack of uh, sort of support and recognition worldwide that sort of keeps, put a lot of people who are trying to find a safe haven in a very precarious situation, stateless Correct. and moving. So it's just stateless and moving. And of course, in the aftermath of the massacres of the genocide of 1915 to 1923, Claudia, I mean, the majority of those who committed this crime or these crimes escaped persecution, escaped all persecution. And the young Turk leaders really faced no consequences for these horrific actions. There were some tribunals that occurred, I think, you know, 1919, 1920, 21 in Constantinople. But the successive Turkish government that formed really did nothing to punish these young Turk leaders for their crimes. And they really balked at carrying out any sentences. And uh, they escaped culpability and responsibility for the genocide. And 
unlike what happened in the Holocaust, there weren't any Nuremberg trials at the time. Not they didn't occur. In fact, and the term genocide wasn't even coined at that time of World War One. That came later. It came later. When did it come back, uh, Tim? Uh, I want to say around nineteen. Like after Nuremberg, after Nuremberg. Perhaps. Yeah, Ra- Ra- uh, Raphael Lemkin. Do you know who Raphael? No, Lemkin I don't. Is? Okay. Uh, Raphael Lemkin is the one who coined the uh, phrase genocide. Okay. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Tim Jamal, entrepreneur, advocate, educator, small business owner, and nonprofit executive. And he is my guest here on Digging Out, talking about Armenia, and we're working our way toward this state and the, the area, majority Armenian area inside what's known as uh, Artsakh, also known as Azerbaijan, Nagorno-Karabakh. So then in 1991, as there was the independence was declared from the... Yeah, if I could step back for a second to 91, when the Soviet Union was disintegrating, uh, many of the former republics of the Soviet Union declared their independence, Armenia being one of them, Azerbaijan being another. And then in accordance with then Soviet law, Nagorno-Karabakh itself declared its independence. Um, and let me just hearken back to the creation of Soviet Union. So Nagorno-Karabakh, or what's known to Armenians as Artsakh, has always been Armenian lands. When the Soviet Union was formed, Joseph Stalin in his deviant way ceded Nagorno-Karabakh to Azerbaijan. So in essence, he subjugated the Armenians to Azerbaijani control forcibly when this is territory that has been part of the Armenian culture for centuries. So that is land very sacred to Armenians. But at the time when the Soviet Union was formed, these are the borders Joseph Stalin created. So then you take forward to the collapse of this. And I I was going to say, and in the furthering of maintaining a kind of a, a confederated stability within the USSR, it was only for that the Union of Soviet Socialist Republic, that kind of teetering of, of mapping a reason. I mean, for Stalin's reason? For, it was for Stalin, right, to, well, to yeah, maintain I mean, I, control. I, correct. I mean, there's not much to like about what Joseph Stalin did. And one thing he did, of course, was a master of pitting people against each other, as you said, in order to maintain control, divide up their communities, take their historic lands, and ensure that he himself is able to maintain an iron fist over them without any serious conflicts. And uh, he managed to do it to the chagrin of, of course, the Armenians and many others. We weren't the only ones who suffered under Joseph Stalin. I was going to just say, I, I recently interviewed the, some Native Americans, and we were talking about where they resided in the Americas here. And we talked about the social tectonic plates under which we are now living. Oh, and then I'm thinking in terms of Armenia, we're looking at like a constant demographic and a cartographic erosion. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's an interesting way to, to say it. I think that being subjugated to the rule of the, the Soviets for the decades that our Armenians were I mean, had a significant impact on our, obviously, our psychological state and our right. identity as a people. 
because although there was some religious autonomy in and of itself, the Soviets, as you know, did not really endorse religion under their rule. And, you know, Armenians themselves identify with centuries of connection to the church and being Christians. Even though some Armenians may not practice Christianity, it provides an identity for us. And we have, you know, centuries old churches that still adorn Armenia, Artsakh, other places of the world, unfortunately, in Turkey itself today, which was the historic Armenian lands, they've destroyed or desecrated m- many Christian monuments and churches. But lo- looking at what happened at the bre- in the breakup of the Soviet Union around 1991, so the Azerbaijanis didn't like very much that the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh were demanding their independence, as they were allowed to under then-Soviet law. And they engaged in some horrific pogroms and massacres in Baku, the capital city, and Sumgait, a suburb outside of Baku, where hundreds of Armenians were raped and murdered. And then Azerbaijan itself launched military attacks on Armenians in Nagorno-Karabakh, starting in the late 80s and then carrying through to 1994. The Armenians eventually were able to prevail, thankfully, and win that war. And a ceasefire was agreed to um, at the time brokered by Russia, you know, between Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh, Russia, and Azerbaijan. The Minsk group, was that, that's what that, it's called? That, 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 should... that wasn't yet the Minsk group. They, okay, they didn't, later. It didn't quite happen yet. The Minsk group came a little bit later. Okay. So Tim, I want to get a kind of a feel for the actual, com- on the community level, like it <laughs> flying five feet over. So... Was there a, a sort of a tension? We're talk, we know what's going on b- between Turkey and Armenia, but with the Azerbaijani neighbors and the Armenian neighbors in Artsakh, was there like in Yugoslavia, there in, like in Bosnia, there, there was a sort of a kind of communal understanding, a detente. Or, I think they, so. They, they I did. think that's right. Because You're when good. you read about it now, it's sort of like the lines are drawn. It's like, they're bad and we're good. Azerbaijanis are very supportive of the incursion into Artsakh uh, has just taken place in September. Well, so not only supportive, I mean, they're the ones for, since the Armenians won the war in 1994 and were able to retake Nagorno-Karabakh as Armenian land and the Armenians declared their independence. I mean, since that time, successive regimes, both in Azerbaijan and in Turkey, have engaged in violent rhetoric, threats of annihilation, have always said that they intend to use force to retake the lands. And that hatred has gone on for decades. It's been I mean, stoked. And so you have a, yes, it's been stoked by the by both regimes. And, you know, over the years, Turkey itself has become excessive in its use of suppression of its minorities. There's really no religious freedom in Turkey other than if you practice Islam. There's media suppression, there's political suppression, there's really no opposition parties. Journalists are jailed. And that has gotten more intense over the years. In Azerbaijan, it's always run by, has always been run since independence by a family oligarchy, a kleptocrat, the Aliyev family. Uh, Gedar Aliyev, who was in the KGB, was the initial president of Azerbaijan, and he was succeeded by his son, who has turned out to be even more nationalistic, stoking more hate, and that culminated with Turkey and Azerbaijan launching this war about two months ago against Armenia and Artsakh. 
and we're going to step back just a little bit, uh, sure. maybe a year or two before that, but no, but the, we're headed. That's where we're headed. We're going to stay once we get there. But I just want to know, Tim, from the kinds of work that you've done, were you a little unnerved with what was taking place in Ukraine? Was that an indication that there is an alignment with Trump, the Trump administration and the strongman leaders in that part of the world and elsewhere that was in Ukraine taking what was taking place. Was that a sort of a heads up? Something is something's going to make there's going to be a move on the. Uh, well, let me, touch on the, uh, let me touch on both of what you said. So first of all, this idea that the United States cozying up to dictators and authoritarian regimes it really is an antithesis to where I think our interests are. And so you, you mentioned uh, being <laughs> Donald Trump cozying up to dictators. And of course, we saw that over the last four years, whether it was in North Korea, whether it was uh, Putin in Russia, or whether it was in Salman in Saudi Arabia, or Tajib Erdogan in Turkey. There's not a lot of good that can come out of cozying up to dictators um, if you're a country that's the supposed to, and is the oldest democracy that exists in the world today, that has the Declaration of Independence, it just goes against our entire value system of who we are. It's not a good policy to engage in, and it hasn't worked. And it's not just Claudia related to current administrations. So, you know, prior administrations, uh, whether they be Democrat or Republican, have engaged in, I think, unhealthy relationships with dictators. Now, the, of course as a nation, we have to deal with regimes, but there are ways to deal with regimes and there, there are ways that not to deal with dictatorships. And one of them is to coddle them. We never want to do that. And secondly, we never want to encourage them to act on their genocidal or authoritarian impulses where innocent people and lives will be lost. So then I was wondering if what was happening in Ukraine, since it's in that general well, region, if you found that that was that was an unnerving kind of development, you thought. What happened in Crimea or the Velvet Revolution in Ukraine, where they brought in, they actually rooted out their version of oligarchs and authoritarian leaders and, and brought in a reformer. I mean, Ukraine had a Velvet Revolution, um, which means a nonviolent transfer of power. And, and, and then the Russian annexation of Crimea, is, of course, if that's what you're referring to, is very alarming. Yes. So... We are now moving to September and there, there are lots of levels there, are the personal, the national and the international aspects. So it, is it fair to say that it was a proxy war to start with then? Well, that's an interesting question. And I think of what you, know, what you mean by proxy war, are there bigger powers fighting this war um, on behalf of the, the people and regimes that live there? And I think there's some truth to that. So on the, on the Azerbaijani side, their biggest supporter is the, the government of Turkey. Their leader, President Erdogan has made it clear uh, over his rule that he intends to establish a greater pan-Turkic, pan-Islamist state. He has said that repeatedly. Um, and if you look at the, at the map, there's really one country that stands in its way of, of really beginning that enterprise of going east, and that's Armenia. The Republic uh, of Armenia. Of course. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So Armenia is one that stands in its way. And I think, you know, on the Armenian side, uh, we had uh, in Armenia a, a nonviolent 
Velvet Revolution of our own. In 2018? Um, 2018, where there was a strong movement across the entire country took place to remove those who were in power who were corrupt and put in place uh, democratic leaders. And in this case, Nicole Pashinyan, who is the current prime minister, then um, took over and was elected as the prime minister of Armenia. So, but did the outcome of to the, the process in 2018, the outcome, did that surprise you that there, I mean, democratic muscles are difficult to tone, but there was there, there was a, a civic society that was ready to pull this off. Uh, well, I think the society has been ready. Armenian, Armenia itself, Armenians that live in Armenia, Armenians that live in Artsakh are civilized people. They have democratic instincts. They have values a lot like we as Americans have. What surprised me, that didn't, their desire for change and for democracy didn't surprise me. What surprised me a little bit was that the person in power, Sarah Starkishan, whose resignation was being demanded by the people, um, had a choice to make. He had a choice to make, which is, do I hold on to power or engage in violence to keep power or do I step aside? And to his credit, at least on that front, he stepped down. And thankfully, no violence occurred. And there was a transition of power that was peaceful. And I can say that it did uplift the country. And I think people felt like they were in part liberated because there was corruption that was taking place. And Everyone knew it. Armenia is not a large country. And so when you have corruption, it's noticed by the entire population. It doesn't go unnoticed. It's a village. Everybody can know. Yeah. What, yeah. Okay. I mean, so was that, was that triumph a thorn in Erdogan's side? And, and, but we're not, I'm getting to the point where it's like there were advantage taking moments in this fall. That, um, but was that 2018 triumph a, a real... A thorn. You know what? In terms of Erdogan in Turkey, maybe to a certain degree, it was a thorn. He doesn't seem to be influenced a lot by external actions, um, oh. especially by countries like Armenia, who he feels that are inferior to him militarily. Um, you know, Turkey's a country of 100 million people, a member of NATO, and a member, not an ally. I don't consider them an ally anymore, but they are a member of NATO. And so, uh, you know, did it, was he bothered by it? Uh, you know, it's hard to, hard to read the mind of someone who has been intent on ethnically cleansing the area of Armenians and Kurds and other minorities for, you know, for years now. I do know that over the last two years that the level of cooperation and military expenditures by Azerbaijan have in, increased, you know, substantially. And that, you know, Turkey itself is clearly the country that led and pushed Azerbaijan uh, into what happened two months ago, which was a large-scale military offensive uh, against a country of less than 3 million by two countries that combined over 100 million with the most modern weapons in the history of the world. And we'll talk about those too. So yeah. I wanna, so was COVID, and the, all of the trauma, the economic and social trauma of a pandemic spreading, was that like the final sort of green light for Erdogan to make a move into Arsak? Oh, I mean, I don't think so, Claudia. I think it was very, it was even, it was much more 
cunning than that. I mean, I think there was a, there was definitely, there was a calculation of a number of things. One of which is that we're in the waning days of the Trump administration and the U.S. is approaching an election cycle when, where they'll be distracted. Two, Erdogan and, and Aliyev, the, the authoritarian leader of Azerbaijan, also made a calculation that the world wouldn't act, that at the end of the day, if Armenians are being ethnically cleansed, if civilians are being killed, if Azerbaijan is retaking territory by force, that the, the world would not act, and the United States in particular would be kind of paralyzed because of the elections, because of perhaps Trump's relationships with Erdogan, and because of the U.S. general disengagement from many parts of the world, including the Caucasus region, the former Soviet Union, they calculated that the U.S. ultimately would not intervene to stop it. And unfortunately, they ended up being right. Yes. Well, I want to know, I happen to have a little glimpse on the buildup to this war opening up there. There were back channels that were being pursued, I, I would guess, because there must have been just no official action from the United States State Department. In your introduction, we talk about some work that you've done, emissarial and other kind of and, uh, political work. So were you, Tim, to the extent you're able to say to us, were you a part of what kind of back channels were being sought after for some kind of a response because it, it's not going to be a State Department function. It's going to be the diaspora. It's going to make something happen. Well, and that's, yeah, um, I can talk a little bit about that, Claudia. I mean, I, okay, I, I, good. Think, I think the state, I think the issue, so the, let's just talk, step back for a second. The, the U.S. is in a real conundrum. You have at, in the U.S. government uh, successive generations of foreign service officers at the State Department who grew up with the idea that Turkey is the bulwark against communism, Soviet Union and Russia. So these are, it's kind of, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's generations of people in the foreign service who, when I worked in Washington, we used to go into rooms with congressional staff. And I talk about, we need to support Armenia. We need to support justice. We need to recognize the genocide. The Turks are not a, a friend of democracy. They're not a friend of humanity. And, and what they would do sometimes, they'd pull out a map, Claudia, and they just point to it and say, just look, look at here. the map. Here's the here. Bosphorus. Here's this, this, right. this. Yeah. Right. And there wasn't a discussion of whether they have democracy. Oh, Tim. Treat their... Tim, one oh? thing. Were there gas lines on the map? Oh, yeah. Okay. Of course. Okay. Of so course. Just... I mean, that, that gets into the whole geopolitical nature of what happened. And we can talk about that, too. But I just want to see how all of it's on the map when you were there in D.C. talking about justice for Armenia. Okay. Oh, 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 State Department. Of course. Okay. Human rights, justice, not only just for Armenia, but we, we stood in, even though, you know, the Kurds during the Armenian right. genocide of, of 1915 and 1923 played a horrific role. And there were Kurdish gangs that roamed the Kurdish countryside looking for Armenians. But at the end of the day, you know, we ended up being in support of the Kurdish rights in, in Turkey when Turkey started their war against the Kurds. 30,000 Kurds have been killed by Turkey over the last 25, 30 years, because um, they tried to exercise their desire to practice, speak their own language, practice their religion, and identify with their own culture. So the, these successive 
generations of people, Claudia, at the State Department who still have not made that transition really? to realize that what's, what's, but what is in the interest of the United States? What constitutes national interest? Is it the fact that there is a country that exists on a map because it's, a, like you said, at the, at the, you know, at the Bosphorus? Or do we have something greater in which do we build on lasting partnerships? Uh, the geopolitics of the situation overwhelmed everything else. And what I mean by that is, of course, oil pipelines and gas pipelines from Azerbaijan that supply other parts of the world and other countries who find it valuable. That's one. And uh, two, the fact that, you know, there's still this hope, I think, in some in the State Department that somehow Turkey will go back to what they want, what they think they want it to be, which is this active participant in NATO that aligns with U.S. interests around the world, that, you know, we are going to have a, a base there in perpetuity. And, and somehow Turkey is going to align with us against the greater ambitions of, you know, Vladimir Putin and, and the Russian Federation. And that, it just hasn't worked out that way. So we need a new way of thinking, especially at the State Department. And we need new, newer generations of people who are engaged in the world and look at it in ways that are more aligned with our values and our interests, not only as Americans, but Democrats, like not, not political Democrats, but people who actually believe in freedom and liberty. And so that's going to take some time, but I'm not naive. Geopolitics is always going to play a part of that part of the world and most parts of the world. And, you know, Armenia has to get stronger and get stronger economically. Of course, you know, you, it's like anything else, you can't rely on others. So you have to be able to try to take care of yourself. And then what happened was that when Turkey and Azerbaijan launched this horrific invasion, and let me tell you, and you probably looked up some of what happened. I mean, they targeted civilians, they used banned cluster munitions. I mean, mm. Imagine this, Claudia, a mm. NATO member is recruiting jihadist terrorist mercenaries from Syria, right? Yeah. From Syria to go and, in, and be deployed in a region where they didn't exist before and to seek out and kill Armenians because they're Christian. They made this a religious war. And by, by recruiting, I mean, how do, how do you think they, well, they enticed the, the, the mercenaries by bribing them. The definition of mercenary is someone who's paid to go fight uh, in a war. And then they offered bonuses, uh, these hideous bonuses that, that if they beheaded an Armenian, they got a hundred dollar bonus. I mean, this is from a NATO country. I this don't think people NATO realize that, Tim. I think that's just like an, that, that is way off the, the radar of people understanding. I, and I know you're following all this. I know that you were, people could track the aircraft that were leaving, was it Northern Syria? It was the loaded jumbo jets, and they were headed straight to Artsakh, correct? Correct. I mean, it it they, was, they, you were monitoring it in real time. We monitor it in real time. I mean, you know, that's the, you, I think one of your questions you want to ask is how does it feel like 1915? Of course, yes. I wasn't in 1915. My forebears and antecedents were, but it feels like 1915 because it was. They had a desire to ethnically cleanse the Artsakh, our land, Armenian's land. From our, uh, to cleanse Armenians from, the, from their land. But the difference was in 1915, uh, there were not that many eyewitnesses, some New York Times reports. The difference was, Claudia, 
we saw everything that they were doing. We saw the flights going in. <laughs> we saw the troop movements. We saw the terrorists being deployed. And imagine, I mean, it's one thing to, to see your, you know, your brothers and sisters being killed in a genocide and to read about in history, which is horrific. And then today to wake up and watch it happen right before your eyes. And in hoping that at some point, will someone step in and stop these maniacal authoritarian gangsters who are engaging in this campaign? And that's what, that was, you know, painful, not only for me, but every, all Armenians around the world, not the least of which the people who live there, you know, some four to 5,000 Armenians were, were killed. We, we saw the drones being delivered from Turkey and Israel. The with components was, manufactured with components here. Man, manufactured in the U.S., some in Canada, though Canada stopped selling some of them at some point, GPS from uh, systems from the United States. So imagine you're watching these aircraft flow in, fly in and out, knowing that they're going to for the sole purpose of extermination and extermination and conducting ethnic cleansing on behalf of these gangster kleptocratic regimes. And in the end, uh, I don't know if you want to get there now or if you want to stop and. Well, I want um, I wanted to talk, uh, we we're talking about you could monitor this, but what were you able to contribute or what, what was it like to be contacted when th there's a real scrambling for an unofficial way of trying to either uh, so, monitor to get a ceasefire started when there was that the State Department was just watching uh, Rome burn, or he wasn't so, even looking. Look, when I, when I first, when, when um, two months before the major attacks by Turkey and Azerbaijan, Turkish dictator Erdogan was publicly saying that he wants to reestablish a uh, pan-Turkic empire. He also said that Armenians should be aware their military is not as strong as they think it is. So, I mean, he was saying this stuff publicly. So at the time, of course, my alarm bells went off. And when, when the military attacks did occur, I, I, I was in, you know, I had the ability to try to have some conversations with people in the U.S. government. And I think the, you know, what the message was is, I know you're distracted by the election. I know that we've disengaged from generally from most parts of the world, and that this is a geopolitical battle, that we're, we're no longer part of that geopolitical game, at least in this administration. But at the end of the day, do you really want to see a people ethnically cleanse that share our values? And do we really want to cede this land to a reconstituted Turkish empire run by this authoritarian maniac, Tejib Erdogan? Do you, is that really in the interest of the United States? So you were had the, that happen? What was the answer? What kind of response did you get, Tim? <laughs> I, I think the response, uh, well, I know the, I can, I can just tell you this, Claudia. I, I, I think the response is that they tacitly agreed that's not an outcome that they want to see. Meaning, do you really want a pan-Turkic region um, run by Erdogan and a unhinged Turkey. And I think they, the answer is no, they don't want that. Then the question becomes, so I think it got them to that point. And I think the question is then Claudia, what do we do about it? 
what can be done. And I think that's where they didn't go far enough. The only language people like Erdogan and Aliyev understand is brute force. So there's only a couple of ways to do that. You, you impose strangling sanctions, military and economic, and you do it instantly, or you push them back militarily. And I think the option of militarily defending or at least deterring these, these horrible, heinous crimes that were being committed, that didn't seem to be an option. But what could have been an option are sanctions and immediate sanctions on Turkey and Azerbaijan not only from the United States, but from the, you know, what we from call the, the Western Union. world. Yeah, yeah, the EU, you know, the Western world, the European Union, and they didn't do it. They threatened to do it, but they didn't do it. And so at the end, what happened is that, you know, Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation, and, and on, on the positive side, stopped the bloodshed. Uh, because... Wow. We, there's, we, we, Armenians were not in a position to compete against that kind of, you know, you've got a triple threat. You've got Azerbaijan, you've got terrorist mercenaries, and you've got, you know, the, the, the largest, second largest army in NATO. And they had command, Turkey had over 600 commanders on the ground. They were, make no mistake, they were, this was a Turkish invasion of Armenia. I mean, this is a country, you know, Armenia has never attacked Turkey, ever. No. I mean, this is a preemptive war against the Armenians by a NATO member. And I don't even and think that those words have not been used in name your mainstream media outlet in the US of A. So it's sort of like, that's why we're doing this, Tim. And you, Claudia, you, I mean, and that, that's the other thing that was, that was um, and, you know, I, I and other Armenians were incensed about is that the coverage in the media was awful. It was either non-existent or it was biased. I mean, the mainstream media barely covered the war, and when they did cover it, they mischaracterized it as clashes between both sides or you know resumption of hostilities. This was a major coordinated large-scale offensive by a NATO member with their satellite state, Azerbaijan, um, and its you know oil-rich dictator, and against um, people that were outgunned, outmanned, and the media and most major media outlets with very few exceptions, it was almost as if there was like a media embargo and it gets you to think that- Yeah, effectively. That that embargo may have been put in place by geopolitical interests and, and interest in you know, oil and uh, arms sales. And you know, it just, it goes back to where I think we are today is we've got to get more organized the diaspora has got to get smarter, the Armenian diaspora. We have to communicate and tell our narrative in the way it should be told, which is to tell the truth. We, there needs to be consequences for these actions by Turkey and Azerbaijan. And we need to talk to states that you know, should understand that having Armenia as your partner over the long haul, a democratic-leaning, democratic-oriented society, civil society that shares your values that's the kind of people we want to lift up tim i just want to let our listeners know my guest is tim jamal on digging out and he is talking about the war um, perpetrated by turkey on the armenians in the artsakh 
the Republic of Artsakh, or also known as Nagorno-Karabakh region there. And we're talking about how this has been covered in the U.S. And I guess there's, there's a couple of aspects of this where if you have all in the diaspora in the United States, the Armenian diaspora, have tried to get legislators and other leaders around the country to acknowledge the genocide that took place in 1915. If that step was a hard step for a, a preponderance of representatives to take and leaders to take, then that would have made it, even, you would have had so many headwinds, you did have so many headwinds in trying to get at least a ceasefire started or something to calm the hostilities to calm down in Artsakh. So it seems like it's an unwieldy problem. And then to add to the asymmetry, I was aware that material was being requested, desperate requests were made for households of the diaspora to contribute relief to Armenians that were moving out of the Artsakh Republic. Yeah, I mean, of course, when, when that's, that's true, there's a couple of fronts. Um, you know, of course, when, when you see such a humanitarian catastrophe that was taking place, where you had deliberately targeting of civilians, where these drones were inflicting enormous damage on Armenians and, and the people of Artsakh. I mean, if you're, if you're in the diaspora, like we are, millions of others, I mean, your first instinct is, how do we help? What can we do? I mean, there is, a, of course, a feeling of helplessness to a certain degree. Yes. Um, and every, every day that went by felt like another day, like taking a piece of our um, soul away from us. Because each day that went on, um, we knew that more people were being killed through these horrific attacks and that we felt like, how, I know that I felt one, how do I, how can I, in whatever role I can play, stop this? And then secondly, how can we help? And of course, the first way to do it is like you said, to provide, you know, assistance in, 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 in various ways, humanitarian assistance, medical assistance, whatever it takes to try to help them get through this brutality. And, and what happened in the end is that Armenia was forced to uh, surrender um, in a very painful way uh, lands that have been part of, you know, the Armenian fabric for, for centuries, including mm. um, up to 40% of Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh um, that's now under Azerbaijani control. And make no mistake, Claudia, and and they they are 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 have a, a they have proven consistent to their this their word in this sense. The hatred fomented against Armenians over generations is coming into manifesting itself in terms of how they treat the prisoners of war, violations of the Geneva Convention, um, mistreatment of civilians, desecration of Christian monuments. They're already starting to do it. I mean, these are things that um, at some point when unhinged regimes say they're going to do things, we need to take them seriously because they do them. And we're seeing it now happen before our eyes. So by, I, yeah, sorry. But I was going to say that, look, it's like, you know, it's like when you tell, you know, you sell someone who's looking for a job, put it, put it in the context like that. The best way you're going to help yourself is to promote your, your own self. Don't wait for others to promote you. And in this case, 
I don't expect the media to do the right thing. I don't expect world leaders to do the, to do the right thing and uh, stand for in, in line with justice. I think it's up to us and diaspora, collaboration with those in Armenia to build up a, a greater global diplomatic and political and media effort to tell the story, not only of what just happened recently, but why it's in the interest of the world to have a strong, secure Armenia and an independent Artsakh whose people are allowed to exercise their right of self-determination, just like we were allowed you know, 240 years ago to do that ourselves against a tyrannical monarchy. I mean, that's the context we need to put it in. And, you know, the geopolitics of the world, interests of oil and fossil fuels, I mean, eventually the use of fossil fuels will not exist. I mean, you know. The spigot will be kept. We will will wean ourselves away from fossil fuels at some point. And I think, you know, but in the short run, before that happens, we have to ensure Armenia survives. And I'd say the good thing is that the bloodshed has stopped. There are Russian peacekeepers there. The status of Nagorno-Karabakh or Artsakh is not yet determined. And one of the things we're doing right now as a community worldwide is asking the world to recognize Artsakh, to allow it to pursue self-determination. Because that's really the only way that they're going to be able to protect and defend themselves is to, to be recognized by the world. And then, you know, the new Biden administration is coming in. Will they be different from the Trump administration? It's hard to say, Claudia, if they're going to be any different. But we're we're going to try. We're recording this on November 23rd, and we are just starting to hear about appointments to various federal uh, departments. And uh, there's it's a it's a new world that way. But like you said, Tim, Soft power isn't our long suit in foreign affairs. So, but that there is a, a different dynamic that's slowly sort of taking. But I want to find out while we're talking about this war perpetrated on Artsakh, the Republic of Artsakh, is where are those that are currently displaced? Because a lot of them had to leave. They they burned yeah. down their own homes. They didn't want to leave some residents for the the Azerbaijanis to take over. But so where are those people? And that was really painful to watch. I'm sure you saw some of that taking place. It it was unbearable really to watch the Armenians who knew what would happen to their homes when the Azeris came in. So um, they burned them down, as you said, as they were leaving these territories that were forced to give away or surrender back to the enemy who's, who's intent on ethnically cleansing the region of Armenians. A lot of them went to Yerevan, which is the capital of Armenia. Most of them ended up there. There has been some movement over the last few days of Armenians returning to the parts of Artsakh that are controlled by Armenians, mainly the capital city of Stepanakert. But there are several other areas of Artsakh which have been under Armenian control under the Republic of Artsakh for nearly 30 years. Those have been surrendered and thousands of people lost their homes and they can't go back to those homes, mainly in cities called like Hadrut, a historic Armenian city, and Shushi. But they ended up, most of the refugees and internally displaced persons ended up in Armenia, but some have gone back and are going back. And so I'm hopeful that most of them will go back to Artsakh because that's their home. That's where they have lived. That's their identity. 
And I think it's consistent with U.S. values to support that and to help to rebuild this place that was destroyed by these modern weapons and chemical weapons as well. By the way, I don't know if you know that you noticed that the Turks and the Azeris use white phosphorus. Right. And, and they those use cluster are munitions. International which are man. Correct. So would you say though, with the ceasefire that a portion of the Artsakh Republic had been partitioned for Azerbaijani control? Is that what happened? So, and that has sparked a lot of controversy and anger in both in Armenia and in the Armenian diaspora, where the current prime minister, Nikol Pashinyan, signed an agreement which allowed for up to 40% of Artsakh, including the really historic Armenian city of Shushi, to fall under Azerbaijani control. Having said that, in this ceasefire, which is really thinly written with not a lot of detail, the status of Nagorno-Karabakh itself, whether it's an independent country or whether it falls to Armenia, is not yet determined. So that is something that has not been resolved. That status of Nagorno-Karabakh is not final. And that's what we intend to work for in the diaspora, and I think in Armenia as well. There are Russian peacekeepers there throughout Artsakh that, at least for now, hopefully, will stop the bloodshed. But the final status itself is Up in not yet determined. Not yet determined. You yourself, where have you been, Tim, in those different corners of the world? those different republics we're talking about today. So I've been really lucky over the years. I've been to Armenia and Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh many times. I was able to both organize and accompany five different congressional delegations to Armenia and Artsakh. I was in Artsakh in 1995, really a historic trip with uh, Congressman Frank Pallone. He and I traveled together to Armenia and Artsakh and Congressman Pallone is the congressman from New Jersey. He is the founding chair of the Congressional Caucus on Armenian Issues. And in 1995, we traveled to Artsakh together to Stepanakert, the capital city, mm-hmm. where he delivered a speech in parliament there, recognizing their independence. And this was back in 1995. So last summer, my wife and my daughter traveled to Armenia and to Artsakh, and we went to a region called Kelbajar, which has a ninth century Christian monastery called Dadivank. And and we visited that just a little over a year ago. And in two days, the territory with this monastery and other really ancient Christian monasteries is being handed over to Azerbaijan. It's intact. It's intact right now. But that remains to be um, seen. Well, they have a track record of desecrating and vandalizing and destroying Christian or Armenian monuments and artifacts. I mean, this is the fact. And for now, it's being protected by Russian peacekeepers who are there for up to five years. So in the short term, at least in terms of the monuments themselves, the monasteries, the structures, I'm hoping they'll be protected in in those parts. But remember, there are also areas that are fully under Azeri control where there are no Russian peacekeepers. And those are the areas where I know there's going to be, and we've already seen it, um, we've seen video clips you know, they, they're not very good about not gloating about their crimes. The Azeris and Turks like to gloat about crimes they commit and post these heinous, despicable videos on YouTube of taunting of POWs, defacing churches and crosses. These are the people we have to deal with. And until we change, I mean, it's going to take, I mean, you see the, the task we have at hand. We've got to change the views of the State Department and other world leaders, but we also have to find a way to stop the hate being perpetrated by 
these two regimes. And we must find a way to do that. But at the same time, we have to get, Armenia has to find a way to get stronger itself and build new alliances and think of what alliances in different ways in the Middle East, in Africa and in Europe, so that we get to a, the precipice like this, a point at which when you really need it the most, you know someone will step in. And in this case, when we really need it the most, no one stepped in until the end when we were forced to surrender, painfully surrender these lands that have belonged to Armenians for centuries. Well, Tim Jamal, I know I've pulled off an innumerable number of scabs to bring out the story, but it's the story I wanted to offer listeners to digging out. There's so much debris there that I appreciate your giving us literacy we haven't had, context we do need, and there's seeds being planted on our watch, and I wanted to make sure that we had a chance. It's a Thanksgiving show. People are listening to this. And so I don't shrink away from where our attention needs to be directed and where we can reach in our humanity and and dig out. Thank you, Tim, for being on my show today. Well, thank you, Claudia, for having me. And let me just say that I am thankful I live in a country where they count the votes and where democracy still exists. And I am thankful for that. And I think the United States will find a way to support people that want freedom and liberty and self-determination. And I thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. My guest was Tim Jamal, entrepreneur and advocate and involved in many emissarial kinds of work on behalf of Armenia and the Republic of Artsakh, where the war is now in a ceasefire on hold for this moment. Thanks again, Tim. Thank you, Claudia. Happy Thanksgiving. So I hope as we're clearing the debris on Thanksgiving, you'll continue to find some joy on this holiday and into the holidays ahead of us. Stay safe, everybody. Talk with you next week, and thank you for listening, everyone.